0: whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Once dubbed Miss Oblivious because of her single-minded focus, Zelma Long has had a remarkable 50-year career as a winemaker on three different continents. Our chat covered her early years as a dietitian, the pioneering work she did alongside the legendary Robert Mondavi in the early 1970s, her successful decision to invest in South Africa with her husband, viticulturist Phil Fries, her interest in Native American art, and why wine is an opportunity to do other things. Hello, Zelma. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you, Tim. Good to be here.
0: <laughs> it's fascinating to talk to you. Can't wait. Now tell me where you are. You're not in California at the moment, are you?
1: No, we're in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where we have a little casita. And we love Santa Fe.
0: <laughs> well, knowing you guys, you've probably planted vineyards down there as well, have you or not? <laughs>
1: Well, we've certainly tried some of the state's wines, which are pretty much um, non-professional. <laughs> but
0: but uh, so, what do you drink them or not?
1: We did taste them. We did a tasting with some friends here of all the New Mexico wines we can find, <laughs> and uh, we we think they're working on. There is one. <laughs> There is one business which is French, which produces sparkling wines that are good. So it's, <laughs> Fingers it's not crossed. a good place, Tim. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Listen, I want to talk about your amazing career that you've had in wine, but let's just begin with where you were brought up and born, which was in Oregon, yeah, not in California, on the Columbia River. Just were your parents interested in wine and was wine part of your life growing up? Were there vineyards nearby?
1: Nobody drank wine in Oregon at that time. You know, my parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles drank cocktails. No one talked about wine.
0: (laughs) And no vineyards.
1: I believe there were some old grape vines in the Dalles that were planted historically, but I don't know for sure. And no one ever talked about wine. It was pre-wine in Oregon. (laughs)
0: Pre-wine, the free-wine days. Um, And you went and studied general sciences, Oregon State University, and then you end up doing an internship at the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center, and you got a job as a dietitian, didn't you?
1: Yeah, my internship was in dietetics at the hospital there, and then I worked um, in the East Bay at a major hospital as a dietitian for... I think two years. Then we moved up into nearby the Napa Valley, where Bob's parents had a you know, a little vacation spot in the hills, and they decided to buy some land, an old farm and plant a vineyard. That was nineteen sixty-six.
0: This is Bob, this is your this is Bob Long, your first husband, yeah?
1: Bob Long's parents, which are Bob Senior, decided to plant a vineyard in Napa Valley before almost anyone else. Krug, Krug, Charles Krug was there, Christian Brothers was there, and a few other wineries. But he was early in thinking about vineyards.
0: And, And what did they plant?
1: they planted they used the Napa County Farm Advisor uh, who advised them to plant Riesling but not Chardonnay because Chardonnay was too difficult to grow and it was not productive so they planted Riesling and a small amount of Chardonnay and both made wonderful wines but, but the the Chardonnay was really spectacular, and we started in 77. Bob and I started taking those grapes, which had previously been sold, for example, to Mike Gergich, and make them for our own small business startup, which we called Long Vineyards.
0: And when was the first vintage of Long Vineyards where you made you made it yourself? When was that?
1: 1977 it was
0: a chardonnay yeah. so between 66 and 77 you obviously were growing grapes but then you were selling the grapes to other people really
1: it wasn't again it wasn't us it was vatlong's parents that had that property mm-hmm. in that vineyard mm-hmm. so they were selling the grapes until we decided we wanted to to buy them essentially But it wasn't a large production. I think there was seven acres of Riesling and Chardonnay.
0: And at that point you thought, hey, I might have a future in this, did you?
1: I had started working at Robert Mondavi in 1970. Prior to that, I'd been going to school at UC Davis studying enology and viticulture and I was just in the middle of a master's degree when Mike Gurgich called me in the summer of 1970 and said that he had gotten my name from one of my professors and would I like to come work Harvest. And I said, well, I don't think so. I'm going back to school. My mother's visiting right now. But thank you. So he called back the next day, and he said, "This is going to be the best learning experience you can imagine. Much better than going back to school this fall." So I agreed, and I went to work as an intern at Robert Mondavi Winery in 1970.
0: And, and so you gave you stopped doing your masters in enology and viticulture. You never finished it, did you?
1: No, I mean, it was so much fun. It was so interesting to work in the winery. And Robert Muntavi was very forward-thinking. There were only 19 wineries in Napa Valley at that time, and he had started in 1966, and he was always trying new things. It was very fun to work there. Everybody was my age. You know, there weren't any really experienced people Mm -hmm. But uh, it was, we did a good job.
0: I mean, he started that winery, what, in his in his mid to late 50s, didn't he?
1: Yeah, I think he was about 55 when he started. Mm-hmm.
0: Amazing. Just tell us what California was like in those days. You say there were only 19 wineries. I mean, what, was there a buzz starting, uh, you know, when you get onto to the beginning of the 70s, after what Mondavi had done in 66?
1: I think. The 70s were certainly a time of significant development because wine was new to most Americans. Uh, it was being quite well promoted coming from California. And you could sell as much wine as you could make. <laughs> there was a bottomless market. And so more people came in. But it was slow. I mean, we spent... It's the era of the 70s, really experimenting with winemaking, um, and taking the grapes that were available. And uh, uh, what was
0: Mondavi like? I mean, I've met him a couple of times, and I mean, he, I mean, even when he was old, he was still this incredible presence, quite small in stature, but what a kind of aura, yeah.
1: Yes, and in it, he was amazing, incredibly focused, very good-natured. Um, he was inspiring, and he had he he had a saying: "We're going to make the finest. We're going to stand with the finest wines of the world." And he would repeat that. <laughs> and one time, <laughs> we would we would come up and taste together with um, Bob and me and some other people. <laughs> I was young. One time I said to him, you know, Bob, I could bring my recorder and we could just record this, and then you wouldn't have to say it so often. <laughs> <laughs> and he just laughed and <laughs> <It> carried on.
0: <laughs> and and what was his focus in those days? Was it was it Cabernet and Chardonnay? What did he start with when he started making wine?
1: Uh Cabernet, Chardonnay, Riesling, a couple of the Rosé, Rosé of Cabernet, um, Sylvaner, And he, he had to take in some grapes that he wasn't interested in, like Carignan, because the growers really didn't have that much Chardonnay and Cabernet. So, Robert would have some, and he'd buy it, and then um, he'd take in some of the other grapes. We'd make them, and then they'd be <laughs> sold up. It was it was kind of a wild time.
0: <laughs> and what were the planted most planted grapes in the valley at the time? Was it things like Zinfandel? I you mean, know, Napa Gamay. What was there?
1: Napa Gamay was there, and we made Napa Gamay. Uh, we didn't make, there was a little Zinfandel, but most of that was in Sonoma County. Uh, although we did make some Zinfandel, I made some Petit Syrah. Um, as far as what was most planted, I don't know.
0: I mean, were you just thrown in at the deep end?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, he, look, I'll tell you another funny story, Tim. Uh, when I started work with Mike Gurkic at Mandavi, I was the person that was going around and taking the samples the, from the fermenters, and we were tasting them together. And he was then making decisions about what to do, and I was doing some lab analysis. It was pretty basic. And then every day, Bob Mandavi would come around and taste the fermenters with us. And he had ideas about the way it should be. And, for example, I think early on he felt the fermentations should ferment quite cool, let's say 55 degrees. And then two years later, he felt they should ferment warmer, let's say 62 degrees. (laughs) So, you know, there was this kind of... Now, Mike Gurgit was a very experienced winemaker. He was mm-hmm. trained in um, Yugoslavia, and then he'd worked with Telechef and Lee Stewart, so he really knew what to do. But Bob had the enthusiasm. He was a marketing guy. Mm-hmm.
0: Just tell us what it was like working as a woman in the business at that time, and somebody once called you Miss Oblivious, I think probably at that time, because you were very good at turning a deaf ear to the sexism and and the sort of prejudice against you. I just wonder how much, what it was like then, and how much has changed now. Is it much easier being taken seriously, do you think, as a female winemaker at the age you were then, now?
1: Well, those are a lot of questions. (laughs) (laughs) sorry let's start start with then you know I I really didn't well first of all Miss Oblivious Miss Oblivious is kind of my name not only at work but at home because I was so focused you know I was so focused I really didn't see what was going on around me I sat at an airport gate one time, waiting to fly from Portland to San Francisco, and I was reading this fascinating article in the New York Times. And when I finished, I looked up, and everybody was gone. And I went to the, the podium, and the the stewardess said, "Look, we have been we've been calling your name." And finally, the plane is gone. So I had an incredible ability to focus, let's put it that way. <laughs> and it's been very useful.
0: The sexism side of it, was that was that a big thing then?
1: Well, I worked for Mike for a couple of years until he went to Chateau Montalina. Then I was promoted into his job. Um, and I remained there until 19... 80 or late 79 when I was recruited for Seamy and I think you know it was sort of normal for those times let's just say I was focused on doing what I wanted to do Mm -hmm. and that's that's the way I am Mm -hmm. and so I didn't have a lot of it, it was a little bit before the to leading awareness of sexism in the workplace. Hmm. I did, for example, (laughs) one time we had a winemaker come in from France because we had people coming all the time through the winery. Hmm. And uh, I had a a guy who was working for me as an assistant. The two of us sat down with him. And so he turned to my assistant and asked about the winemaking. And I had to correct him. But, you know, That wasn't unusual. I was unusual as a
0: winemaker. I mean, you you were, as you said, very focused and very successful at Mondavi. You became chief enologist, and then you left to join CIMI, as you said, in the Alexander Valley, Sonoma County. Just tell us how different Napa and Sonoma are as places, because there's quite a rivalry between them, isn't there?
1: Well, there's different then and different now. Different then. When I left Mondavi, uh they were just starting the Opus Project. So Napa was, uh, there was a lot more planting, taking out the old vines, putting in Cabernet and Chardonnay. Uh, it was beginning to get more professional and sophisticated. But Napa Valley is geographically very different from Sonoma County which will always create the differences. Sonoma County was settled mostly by Italian immigrants and they brought over their grapes like Zinfandel. There was a lot of Zinfandel planted. But geographically Sonoma County runs has a long coastline. It um also is a, a, but to the San Francisco Bay, which is Carneros. There's a lot of coastal applications now. There's Major valleys: Sonoma Valley, Russian River Valley, Alexander Valley, Knights Valley, and more. Um, so there's a really diverse geography, which lends itself, I believe, um, in a way similar to South Africa, where you have such geographical variation that a, a place can be home to a lot of different varietals.
0: Yeah. And, and you stayed at CME from, what, 79 until 96? And you ended up being, well, I think CEO, weren't you? I mean, you weren't just a winemaker. You were, you were running the entire show. What was your greatest achievement there, do you think? I mean, because was it Chardonnays? Because the Chardonnays you made, they were pretty amazing, weren't they?
1: Yeah, you know, I I saw that you asked that question. I I feel like, in general, my greatest um, achievement in the wine business has been to mentor women and young men who want to grow into the business, because I was at the lead of just developing um, the wine business. And so I would have a lot of people come to me, some to work. I had a lot of people from overseas as interns. I was just reading about uh, Peter Sisick, you know, who uh, is is working at a new uh, Chateau restaurant. In
0: um, And owns Pingus in, in Ribera del Duero, yeah.
1: And, you know, he worked for me. It's a period of time I oh, Did he? Yeah. I had a bunch <laughs> of Australians come over and work with me. So, um, you know, at the time, of course, I was focused on winemaking. Mm. But looking back and looking at the output, I think my um, support, guidance, and influence on um, The next generation coming along was one of the things I'm most proud of, especially bringing in young women.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. Tell us about South Africa. You've mentioned South Africa and had the similarities it has with Sonoma. When did this amazing love affair of yours start with South Africa? What, what, made, what took you there for the first time?
1: It's, it's quite a story. I had a small group of South Africans Come to visit in the late 80s, and they were they were there as a winery, wanting to look at the n- new wineries around the world because they were designing a winery. And um then I had a small group of other winemakers and wineries from the Cape Estate wine producers. And in both cases, we just welcomed them, did tasting, showed them around, just did all the natural things that we would do for any wine professional that came to see us. Mm -hmm. But I understand that at that time, many wineries turned them away because South Africa was a highly racist country. And I didn't even think of it from a political perspective. I thought of it from a wine perspective. After that, um, in 19... Bob, uh, Phil and I were married in 1990. And in nine, and we had been going together in the late 80s. In probably 89, I got a letter from the head of the Cape Sustainable Wine Producers, asking me to come over and give a lecture on the use of barrels in winemaking. And I talked to Phil about it. Phil had just completed uh, 14 years as the wine grower for Robert Mondavi. And they said, well, do you want to go to South Africa? And we said, yeah, fun, new new continent. <laughs> 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 So we 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 agreed, and uh, we were in South Africa in January 1990. And just to put it in a political perspective, uh, Nelson Mandela was released from prison in 1990 February. So we were there at the tipping point. Uh, we weren't. Um, as the guests of the Cape of State wine producers, they sent us to different parts of the South Africa wine lands, and we stayed overnight in several times. Um, they would set up a place to taste and invite local winemakers to come taste with us, and we'd have a dialogue about winemaking. Um, and we were we were impressed with the soils, the climate, the variation in the climate. I mean the, when I said Sonoma and South Africa were similar, I just meant in a small area, you have an enormous variation in soils and aspect and elevation, and um, temperatures that allow were successful growing of a lot of different grapes, so that wasn't necessarily happening at that time in south africa the um there was a lot of control on where you could plant grapes, political control. Mm-hmm. But we thought, gosh, you know these are ancient soils, it's a marine climate you could You could make world-class wines here. And that's really what we wanted. And you have, to. you know. <laughs> yes. yeah. Now, we, we,
0: yeah. It, I mean, how did the Villafonte project start? Because then you decided to invest there, right?
1: We, I went over a couple times to taste with Michael Frigian competitions of South Africa versus Australia. And um, Phil was invited over to a conference and he started consulting for several other people, including uh, Norma Ratcliffe, Mike's mom at Warwick, mm-hmm. and we went back enough times so that we began to know various people there. And in time, Michael Back, who was the son of Sydney Back, who had invited us over in the first, um, in the first year that we went. Michael asked if we'd like to do a joint venture, and he had a piece of property that he thought might be suitable. And Phil and I were at a time in our life where we were – I was just leaving Simi. He was just leaving Montavi, and we were ready for a new adventure, and we thought it would be fun to make wine (laughs) overseas. (laughs) And – and by that time, it, the land in um Nampen sonoma was becoming expensive to buy land to plant vineyards. We were able to buy this parcel, a 100-acre parcel with Michael Back and plant it for, I think it was the total to purchase the land, plant it and farm it for three years until the vines were... Um, Producing was $8,000 an acre. I don't know how much you know about cost. But I mean, it was, it met all of our needs. We could afford it, it was exciting. We believed in the climate and the soils. Uh, and we had someone that wanted to join with us uh in a few years later. It was clear that our vision and Michael Beck's vision were slightly different and And we had known Mike Ratcliffe from working with his mom and he he'd been to Australia studying wine and so we said to him um well we're we're going to change our partnership." Uh, With Michael back, would you oversee the vineyards while we figure out what we're going to do? And he said, Yeah, I could do that, but I'm also interested in becoming your partner. So that's how it happened.
0: That's great. I mean, listen, talking of partners, I want to ask you about Phil, because Phil's a pretty amazing human being in his own right, you've said, you know, he's a very distinguished viticulturist. I just wonder what you kind of learn from each other and how you work alongside each other. Do you have the same taste in wine? Do you have the same vision? Or do you occasionally clash and disagree about things?
1: Well, we have the same vision for fine wine. And um, the, the Villafonte project has been enormously satisfying for both of us. And it was a chance for both of us coming from slightly different sides of the skill sets in in wine growing and winemaking to join our knowledge and and to have our own grapes and make our own wines. It was really, I'd say, the peak for for me um, of my career. To be able to take everything that I had learned, which included, when I was at Simi, a lot of working with the vineyards. And with Phil, to use his expertise with essentially a blank slate, a hundred acre piece of land that had never been planted. uh, And make something that we both saw. We both saw Cabernet as a natural uh, focus in South Africa, because we'd seen some very nice Cabernets, but we felt they could be enhanced uh, significantly, especially through wine. Phil's, Phil really started the concept of wine growing in the Napa Valley, that you're in the vineyard not to grow grapes, but to grow wine. And that drives the decisions that you make. And he has been incredibly skillful in helping wineries achieve their visions of what's possible with their grapes. And so together with my winemaking expertise, his wine growing expertise, this piece of land, um, we just had an opportunity to create something together and something new, which were the Villafonte brands. We were also very fortunate to have Mike as a partner because the three of us had the same vision that is for um very high-level quality and very focused. So none of us wanted to try to make four or five wines because I knew that as a winemaker in a winery, you can only do so much. You can only focus on so much. And I wanted all of my focus to be on our grapes.
0: But I mean, you also worked as a consultant, haven't you, over the the course of your career in Germany, in Israel, in the Rome Valley, Pacific Northwest, where you were from originally. Just just tell us what you've learned from working in those places. I mean, are there some places that have challenged you more than others? Some that have inspired you more? Tell us the places that, that you've enjoyed most.
1: I think the place that I've enjoyed most was working in Israel. Because I was working, I was uh, recruited to work as a consultant for Golan Heights Winery with uh, Victor Schoenfeld, who has been the winemaker there for decades. And the challenges there, well, let me back up. First of all, the Victor and his winemaking group were very sophisticated in very Um, good at what they did. They, when I started there, they were making many different wines and doing, from a dessert wine to sparkling wine to different varietal wines, and doing them all very well. And it appeared that the um, roadblock to improvement lay in the vineyards. And at Cullen Heights, um, the Cullen Heights winery Was owned by a group of growers, and so the challenge was essentially to educate the growers and get their commitment to change and enhance their viticultural practices. They were basically grape growers, and it was time to try to encourage them to be wine growers. So I came in first to really help change the view of the vineyards and some of the basic techniques. But one of the fascinating things about working there was the land. The Golan Heights goes downhill into the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. So in about 30 miles, you can go from below sea level to um, about – 2,000 feet at the base of the mountains that are in the north of the Golan Heights. Now, so again, you have all this opportunity for different um, temperatures, elevations, aspects. Although the, the the soils are more consistent in the fact that they're primary, primarily volcanic soils. But the, the <clears throat> environment was fascinating. And uh, after I finished working, I brought several um, beyond working the first few years with growers and trying to turn around the vision for the wine and and Victor had to work with the growers to um, get them to implement it. Then I was working with the red wines to enhance the phenolic uh, work and um, bringing in some new techniques.
0: Is is there any way you haven't made wine that you'd love to have made wine or not?
1: Well, I I didn't make wine in Australia. I've had lots of Australian friends. It's a very fun group. well, you know, Tim, I've never thought about that. You know? Bordeaux? From, Maybe. You know, you know, from my perspective, I, I worked, I've worked in wine for 50 years and it's been a a growth through my own small winery, uh, a major winery, another sense the international winery owned by LMA, and to our own project. And that Villa Fonte project was to me like a cap on my career, and in the interim, I'd had a chance to work um, consulting in many different places, as you, as you know. Too. So I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, tell us a bit about your PhD
0: because you recently completed a PhD. I mean, you know, we, we all know that you've got this incredible focus and it's in the performance of art. Now, I was particularly interested in your dissertation topic. Just tell us a bit about that and whether there's a connection you see there between what you were studying, writing about and wine.
1: Well, I don't think there is a connection. In particular, and you see, I'm essentially a scientist. I trained in general science. I love science, um, but I felt that my education needed some rounding out into the humanities. So I went back to school to um, to enhance my humanitarian side, and I studied um, performance because I was actually interested in art, but I would never had um, any training or education. And I, I ran into um distinguished professor at UC Davis who said, why don't you do performance studies and you can study the performance of art? So I thought, yeah, that sounds good. And then I did a minor in Native American studies, which I also loved. Just, you know, I could talk about why I loved it, but it's part of what I love about Santa Fe, is that it has a significant Native American art uh, and artistic presence. So my... um <clears throat> My dissertation was about the performance of a sixth generation family of Native American artists. So it's an intersection of the the nature of Native American families in terms of developing the artistic talent and historical background about the interaction with the white explorers and archaeologists Mm. Um, and it brought together those two components. And I think if there's a link, it's probably in the sense that I have felt that there's a great deal of artistry in winemaking. And you m- mentioned, um, the sensory component and of course we have great art in music great art in visual art um but does the senses of the sense of taste and smell is one of our key senses that hasn't been recognized or developed um in the way it could be artistically and i think in my oh uh, in the second half of my life with the evolution of winemaking And uh, not only the technical development, but the sense of taste and trying to achieve tastes and working with plants to change their um, grape chemistry to enhance the tastes that come come from them. And the same thing is true in the food world, a great um, appreciation for sensory differences in food. So that is the link certainly between what I was studying and what I was doing. Although And, I- and, your, and your life. Yes,
0: yes. Just, just last question, I want to ask you about how you get away from wine. You've got this very rich set of hobbies, you know, it's amazing. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how you have time to rest. But, and you've got this secret talent in flower arranging, is what I read about somewhere. <laughs> just tell us how you get away from wine. Do do you
1: need to get away from wine? Well, I've always used wine as an opportunity to do other things. I went to Tibet four times in the nineteen nineties with a curator and a museum director who took Phil and I, and we we saw Tibet in its. Uh, post-Chinese devastation, but still with a very strong Buddhist presence in monasteries and artistic uh, history. That was um, a revelation to me, historically and artistically, and so I've continued to be interested in Asian art, China, Chinese art, Japanese art, um, Buddhist art, but really a kind of... Mm -hmm. Well, uh, not a focus because I was focused in wine. But when I traveled in my semi-marketing days, I would often stay for a day or two after a trip on the weekend and go and see galleries and museums that were of interest. So I was, and then the same thing happened in South Africa. South Africa, the first <laughs> first winery we worked in, um, a woman was working there to develop their art, their art and we made friends with her and she's still a dear friend. She's a professional uh, curator. <laughs> um, and so we started collecting South African art and You know, moving to Santa Fe, it was an opportunity to collect Native American
0: art. Well, and and I think it's it's that hinterland which makes you and has made you such a great winemaker. Listen, um... Zoma, we could, we, could, we could talk all day. I mean, you guys, it's amazing to hear your stories. I mean, there's so many things, other things we could have talked about. But unfortunately, we've run out of time. This, it's been brilliant to talk to you. I hope I'll see you very soon, either in the States, maybe in South Africa or in London. Um, love to both of you guys. And thank you so much for spending time chatting to us on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Tim. It's been fun. A pleasure.
0: Thank you. Great to catch up with Zelman. I love that story about her missing a plane because she was so engrossed in the New York Times article. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Brouwer Ratz from Ratz Family Wines in Stellenbosch. Join me there. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.